kicking off a new series of sermons. And again, if you're new here, this is, uh, we go through either four-week, five-week, six-week sermons. These are things I plan a year in advance and, and spend a week in prayer. And, and I was really excited about uh, this series, and, uh, particularly because I think it's something that's universal. It's a series called Overwhelmed. And we feel overwhelmed. It's interesting, you go back to the 1950s, and there was predictions that with technology that our lives would be a lot easier, a lot comfortable. I'm sure it's something that you've heard about before or read about, uh, that our lives would be convenient, we'd have more free time, more peace, more ease, and it's actually the opposite. I think with technology, in addition to other things, our lives are overwhelmed. It's like, it's like life kind of is squeezing us. And so we're going to dive into this, t- into this series, whether you're 16 or 36 or 66, that you feel overwhelmed at times. It might be a moment, like perhaps today. It might be uh, a day or a week. It might be a season. Maybe it's a few years where you felt overwhelmed. And we're going to look at four statements uh, during the, the month of April. And I want to encourage you to come and bring a friend or a family member that this may really connect with where they're at. And we're going to look at, for instance, the statement that I feel so inadequate. And then also, I feel so anxious, and I feel so unhappy, and I feel so afraid. And we're going to go through those statements in sequence. So this morning, we're going to look at that first one. I feel so inadequate. And again, it's something I think a lot of us feel. In fact, Maxwell Martz, in a recent book, he quotes a study of Americans, a recent study, that 95% of Americans have some sense of feeling inadequate. And I was talking to Pat Gillespie about that statistic this morning, uh, one of our ushers, and, and we both said, we kind of wonder about the other 5%. What, what are they doing? They don't feel that. Yeah, and uh, it's something that we experience. And I was reminded by a friend of mine, Tim, that uh, when he was in high school, he was a sophomore in high school, his, his mom came to him and said, you know what, Tim, I, I think you should volunteer on uh, Saturdays. Help out with a soup kitchen in downtown. Um, it'll look really good on your college resume. And he, he said, no, Mom, I, I'm, I work on Saturdays. I'm already busy enough. It's something I really don't want to do. But she said, again, I know, honey, but it, it'll, it looked really good on your college resume. So he did it. He acquiesced. Even though he didn't, he didn't want to, he didn't play, take any pleasure from it. And then she said, Tim, I think you should join the chess club. And he said, Mom, you know I don't play chess that, that often. And I don't like it. She said, I know. I know, honey, but it'll look really good on your college resume. And then she said, why don't you join the choir? And he's like, Mom, you know I have a horrible voice. In fact, you remind me incessantly I have a really bad voice. Why would you want me to be in the choir? She said, I know, honey, but it'll look really good on your college resume. And Tim said it was interesting during that time because what he found out is that if it was just him without these things, that him himself wasn't enough. He wasn't adequate enough. He had, to, he had to have these other things. Then he found out as he went into adulthood in his career, he was, he was doing things almost reflexively at work, just diving into things that he took no pleasure at all, but simply because it looked good on his life resume. And how many of us can relate to that? We say yes to certain things because it looked good on our life resume, and then we sort of compare ourselves to other people, and it makes us feel better. But deep down, I think, in our bones... Like, Tim, if you and I were laid bare without that stuff, without those, those achievements, without those uh, societies that we're a part of, without those uh, aspects of our work, we have the sense that we're not adequate enough, that we don't measure up. And this is a feeling that a king 
or 2,500 years ago, actually experienced as well. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We're going to look at a king named King Jehoshaphat. And King Jehoshaphat is a remarkable king. And I'm just going to give you a little context before we jump into uh, chapter 20. But uh, his dad, King Asa, actually was a reformer because before that, there was a whole line of these bad kings. And these kings made awful choices like removing the Ark of the Covenant from the temple, taking uh, their Bible at the time, which was the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and took it out of the temple and actually defiled the temple and brought in in pagan gods, which was a big no-no in uh, their uh, belief system. And these kings were doing this, and all of a sudden, God's people were experiencing chaos and problems. And then King Asa comes along, and he's a reformer. He's a reformer. He brings the ark back. He, he brings the Torah back in the temple, restores the order of worship in their services. And then King Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeds him and continues with it. Even to the point, because there had been a couple of generations that had forgotten, forgotten the stories. They had forgotten about the exodus. And the people of God, the Jewish people, had always been known as the people of the book the people of the text. So the, the Torah, the first five books, was very precious to them. Very precious, even to the point their kids later on would memorize the entire Old Testament. I mean, it was something that was very, very important to them because they saw God's word as, as honey to their tongue, something very, very pleasurable. And so what, what King Jehoshaphat did, he, he sent out these rabbis, these teachers, and paid them to go into the villages and go into families and sit down kind of in the living room and teach them God's word. It's absolutely beautiful. He's a good king. In fact, you'll see in the slide behind me that in Second Chronicles seventeen six, it, it, he's actually known as this king. Jehoshaphat delighted in the ways of the Lord. And then also, you don't have this slide. But in chapter nineteen, verse eleven, he told the judges to be impartial, to act justly. And if you do that, God will be good to you. So this is a really good king, really good king. And he had tremendous trust in God. Yet, something we see with King Jehoshaphat is that uh, as he acted justly, not only with his people, but also with the neighboring tribes, for example, the Ammonites, he actually was kind to them, even though they were a threat at times, he was kind and just to them, that uh, King Jehoshaphat's army experienced a minor military victory, or uh, defeat, rather, and the Ammonites heard about this, and they smelled blood. God's people are vulnerable. King Jehoshaphat is vulnerable. So threats of war, threats of a battle, begin to kind of waft in the air. And then we pick it up in verse 3. King Jehoshaphat, or Jehoshaphat, was terrified by this news and begged the, God, begged the Lord for guidance. Okay? Here's a king who does not feel adequate. Okay? Kings are not supposed to be like this. They're supposed to be royal. They're supposed to be regal. They're supposed, supposed to be impressive. Typically, you don't read something like this about a king. This is sort of a parallel of King David. King David's life was very vulnerable, and that's why people loved him so much. And that's why people love King Jehoshaphat so much, too, because he's very open about his life, and he feels terrified. And the community of people that he's leading, they know about this as well. And what we see in King Jehoshaphat, there's a few different responses. As he has this feeling of being inadequate, just like you and me. These are people just like you and me that are, have the same kind of feelings. 
And what we see in King Jehoshaphat in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 are three responses when, when the battles of life come at us. And I want to preach on that this, this morning. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much that we can open up the text. That unlike uh, the previous kings um, in Judah and Israel when God's word was taken away, that we have your text right in front of us. And we believe that this is not an ordinary book, that your word is alive, as it says in Hebrews. Your, your word is alive and active. And I pray that it would speak to us. And I'm, I'm reminded of the uh, statement by Martin Luther, that the Bible is alive, it speaks to me. It has feet, it runs after me. It has hands, it lays hold of me. And I pray that your words would lay hold of our lives in a loving way, in a compassionate way, not in a threatening way, in a gracious way and to guide us and direct us. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right, let's take a look at verses 3 through 5. Jehoshaphat was terrified. The Hebrew actually is yareh. It means dread. It means to be so scared by this news and beg the Lord for guidance. He also ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting. So people from all towns of Judah came to Jerusalem to seek the Lord's help. Verse 5, Jehoshaphat stood before the community of Judah and Jerusalem in front of the new courtyard at the temple of the Lord. And I, I love the fact that Jehoshaphat doesn't deal with this, this feeling of inadequacy by himself because I think there's only one, one thing worse than feeling inadequate is feeling inadequate by yourself. Now, as a king, he could have done that. He could have simply stayed in his palace and dealt with those feelings. But he, he calls the community together because these are his peeps. These are the people that actually love him because he's a good king and he has a great relationship with his community. And he's having, he's having these feelings that he's scared and he is dreading what's going on. He doesn't feel adequate, even though he's a warrior. And he calls the community together. He calls the community together. And I would say that, in number one, in your teaching notes, respond to feelings of inadequacy with community. That when you feel inadequate, bring your people along with you. I think sometimes we want to shelter them from that and kind of have this thing off the side. But, but actually, be countercultural. Because in America, we're all about individualism, aren't we? We're going we're to deal with this ourselves. Or we're, simply, or we're going to talk to a counselor by ourselves, which is, which is great. I applaud counseling, by the way. My daughter's studying to be a Christian counselor. But also... Seek the counsel and the support of the community around you. Those people that you know that have your back. Those people that you know that are for you. And that's exactly what Jehoshaphat does. He brings those people around him. And I think like King Jehoshaphat, we have an enemy. But it's not the Ammonites. They're not around anymore. They died a while ago. We have an enemy. His name is Satan. He's real. And he has a kingdom of darkness. This is no fairy tale. This is no fantasy. This is no movie. It's real. The Bible teaches about this. And Jesus says, I think one of the seminal verses about the devil, is he says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to destroy our lives. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to wreak havoc upon this church and all churches that worship the Lord. That's his mission. That's the mission of his demons. And they're real as well. And they are roaming around this world looking for ways to disrupt. Don't think for a second 
that it's arbitrary. Don't think for a second like it's just simply reserved for religious stuff. It's very real. And why? Why do they want to hurt us? I think it's an important question to ask. Well, he can't, Satan and his demons can't touch God, so they're going to go after God's children. That's me and you. So our relationships, our lives, uh, that's what Satan seeks to do. And for us to know, for us to win the battle, these kind of battles that we experience from Satan or just simply from life is to get, one of our responses ought to be to gather together with community, community around us. And I think a question that we ought to ask, you need to ask, is what kind of community do you have? Are they neighbors? Are they work colleagues? And they can be that. But the question is, two questions. Are they Christian? Because that makes a big difference. And number two, what kind of depth of relationship would you have with them? Is it simply the, you know, the, the kind salutations? Hi, how you doing? Good. How's life? Good. What, how, what do you think about the weather? It's bad. Okay, talk to you tomorrow. How, what, what kind of depth do you have? And I, I would say, you know, for those of you, but half this church are not plugged into a community group yet, and I want to encourage you to think about joining a community group. And we're wrapping up our season this spring, but you can join one this fall. And I've had the experience this past year of actually joining a number of community groups for dinner, and they've invited me over for lunch, and it's been absolutely beautiful because I don't get a chance to really see what's going on and what's happening. And I'll tell you, it, it, it brings chills to me every time I've been in a community group. And just seeing these relationships, the depth of these relationships, that they're for each other. I officiated a wedding yesterday of a daughter of a family, a couple that's in a community group here, and just to see that community group, all of them were there for the wedding and the reception. And during the reception, noticing the guys from that community group were just kind of hanging out, talking. And you could just see the depth of the relationship. I was like, yes. That's what it's about. That's community. And there's nothing more beautiful than community. And then seeing the ladies gather together. In fact, they asked me to take a picture, about eight of them, uh, pictures of them and took uh, those pictures and to see the relationship among the ladies too. It was so deep. You could just see it. They're full of joy and the mother of the bride was so happy and to see the ladies together, you could just see the bond and that's what, we, what you need. If you're not in a community group, I want to encourage you on your communication card to actually fill that out. We would love to respond and help you get connected. Don't do life alone. It's too hard. The battles of life that come at us, if there's anything that we can learn from Jehoshaphat, is that the presence of the community. I love in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it's a popular passage, maybe you've heard it before, verses 9 through 12, two people are better than one because they get more done by working together. If one falls, the other can help him up or her up. But it is bad for the person who is alone. I'd like you to circle that phrase. But it is bad for the person who is alone. In fact, the first thing mentioned in the Bible in Genesis, the first thing mentioned as not good is when man is alone. Okay? We can handle a lot of things, but being, our, by our, being alone in loneliness is very, very difficult. But it's bad for the person who is alone and falls because there is no one there, that, there to help. An enemy might defeat one person, but two people, can, but two people together can def- defend themselves. A rope that is woven of three strings is hard to break. We get more done together. We get more done together. I like this one uh, statement that one drop of rain does not make a big difference at all in the desert. 
but millions drops of rain can turn a desert into a garden. And that's what community is. Who has your back? Who do you have alongside you? And if, and if you're in a community right now and you have that connection, I'd like you to have, have you pray for people in our congregation who don't have the gift of community. Because I know several that don't have those, those close people. Pray for them. Pray for our congregation. Because I think the more we get connected in community, the stronger and more healthy our church is going to be. Okay, before I move on to the next one, I, like, I want everybody to take a communication card. Staff, leadership team, everybody, take a communication card out. What I want you to do on the back, I want you to write down one word. One word or one phrase. And I'm going to do it too. One word or one phrase where you feel not adequate. Something that you feel inadequate. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's parenting. Maybe it's being a husband or whatever that is. Just write that down. And then I want you to put that... It can be anonymous. You can put your name down down if you want to. But over this next week or so, I'm going to pray for every single one of those. Okay? So I I expect about 300 of these to be in the uh, offering basket. Okay? And I'm putting mine down as well. Again, this could be anonymous, or if you want to write your name down, that's fine too. Because I think each of us has something where we don't feel adequate enough. All right, so we see in Jehoshaphat is this response when it comes to this battle where he gathers his, his community around him. And then we also see in Second uh, in, uh, Chronicles chapter 20 another response. Let's move on to that, verses 6 through 9. And it's just absolutely one of the most beautiful prayers in Scripture. In verse 6, in front of the community, he prays this. O Lord, God of our ancestors, you alone, you alone are the, are the God who is in heaven. You are the ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. You are powerful and mighty. So he's just kind of, I think he's kind of speaking to himself. He's remembering, remembering who God is and how mighty he is. You are powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. O our God, did you not drive out those who live in this land when your people Israel arrived? And did you not give this land forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? That's love the fact that he says, not just like your servant or Abraham, he says your friend. And we see in this prayer is this, this close relationship between Jehoshaphat and God. It's a very personal prayer. Your people settled that here and built this temple to honor your name. They said, wherever we, whenever we are faced with any calamity, such as war, plague, or famine, we can come to stand in your presence before this temple where your name is honored. We can cry out to you to save us and you will hear us and rescue us. Notice, notice those words, words of vulnerability because he has a strong relationship with God. We can cry out to you to save us and you will hear us and rescue us. I think one of the best responses to feeling inadequate is prayer. Is where you turn to God in prayer. And, and what's interesting about King Jehoshaphat, not only the fact that he is very vulnerable and transparent about what's going on, but you need to understand, and I was reminded, I went with a, a few, a, two couples from our church to a great talk uh, a couple nights ago, and uh, the speaker reminded me of kings in the ancient world. There was no cabinet. There was no other, anybody else. The king was the glue of society. He was the glue for everything, legal, economic, political, 
military. He was the one. So, for, for example, when the bad kings were leading, that's why there was chaos. That's why there were so much many problems in Israel and Judah. But in King Jehoshaphat, we have, we have this warrior leader who says, I'm not adequate enough, and God, we need you at this time. And, and he's supposed to be the glue holding everything together. And it's just a great way of Jehoshaphat simply being humble and pointing to God in prayer and saying, God, we need you. We need you. But I think what happens for some of us who don't feel adequate enough in our lives is that when we say prayer, um, that actually causes more feelings of inadequacy. Because some of us, and I've talked to some of you, you do not feel adequate in praying. Like, what words do I say? I've never prayed out loud, or I've never prayed really in my life, besides repeating the priest or the pastor in front. I've never really done this. So when we say prayer, that actually it sort of exacerbates this feeling of being inadequate. And I love Paul in Romans 8.26 because he relates with this. Now remember, this is Paul, most influential person in Christianity next, next to Jesus. And he says this, For we do not even know what we should pray for, for nor how to pray as we should. Okay? You know, like Paul has a PhD in prayer. And he's saying, sometimes I'm not sure how to pray. So if, if you feel that, if that's you, when it comes to prayer, know that you have somebody in the Bible that can feel exactly what the way you feel. In, in our adult ed class called Life Hour, it meets at 9 o'clock. I encourage you, we have a few weeks still left. You can jump in at any time. But we went through a series uh, from Max Lucado about prayer. And I think sometimes we, we complicate prayer. And I think uh, what Max taught us is really good. It's a simple prayer. If, if the words are hard to find for you, just pray this. Dear Heavenly Father, Help me. Help them. And the them can be your family. It could be a friend, what have you. Help me, help them. In Jesus' name, amen. And God will know your heart. Maybe to begin that each day this week. And I think not only do we see prayer as daunting, but also sometimes I think we have this misconception that, that prayer is sort of like a, a, a magical wand or something like from Harry Potter. If we simply pray to God, he is going to fulfill all our desires, all our wishes. You know, it's going to happen. Poof. He's going to answer everything. All our dreams are going to come true. But the thing is about prayer that, yes, of course, we're concerned about the results of what happens, but also in prayer... God cares about our relationship. That's really what it's about. God cares about our relationship. And also it's through prayer that he forms and forges our character. Because God is more concerned about your character, my character, than our comfort. And I think that's what we see in the Bible here, over and over. For us to know that God cares about that relationship. And we see that in, in the words of of King Jehoshaphat, we can cry out to you, verses 9 and 12. We can cry out to you to save us, and you will hear us and rescue us. We are powerless against the mighty army that is about to attack us. We do not know what to do, but we are looking for you to help. Amazing. He trusts his God. And I think also as we move on, that when the battles of life come at us and we feel inadequate, I think a lot of times what we do, because this is kind of our ethic, especially in Minnesota, is try harder. Kind of white-knuckle it. You know, redouble our efforts. Just got to try harder. Wake up earlier, work later, whatever that is, whatever that feeling of, of being inadequate is, just try harder. 
And we see uh, in Second um, uh, Chronicles 20, the story continues. We see God actually responding in a different way. Let's take a look at verses 13 through 15. As all the men of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones. And I, I love the fact that the children are there because they see a king who is just remarkable in his transparency, in his humility. And his, they hear his prayer, and they're there to observe something just phenomenal. The Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the men. It's one of the rare occurrences, by the way, of the Old Testament the Holy Spirit has mentioned. The Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the men standing there. His name was Jazahazel. And then I'm going to skip the rest of the names because I'm not quite sure how to pronounce those. <laughs> I'm being honest. I, I, could, I could kind of deceive you and just say it really like quickly and confidently, like I really know what the, how to pronounce them. I really don't, so we're just going to move on. All right. But this is what God says. So he falls, he falls, the Spirit comes upon this young man in this, the community gathering, okay? And this is what he says. This is God speaking through him. Listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Listen, King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by the mighty army, for the battle is not yours, but yes. That is the exclamation point of the story. I'd love to have you circle that word, write it on a piece of paper, put it on your fridge, put it on your dash, maybe glue it to your forehead so when you wake up in the morning you see it right in the mirror. The battle is not yours. It's God's. We need to remember that. So our response to these feelings of being inadequate is to respond with surrender. It's not our battle. It's God's. It's God's. And I think for a lot of us that, you know, we, we, want, we want God in our car. You know, like we're driving through life and, and he's like, he's riding shotgun. And then as we go through hard times, we kind of turn to him, you know, help me with this or help me with that. But we have, we have the keys and we're driving. And what, what, what God is saying to Jehoshaphat is, hey, hey give me the keys. You, you've been driving too long. You've been, you've been white knuckling it too long. Give me the keys. Let me drive. Surrender. Surrender. And I think for many of us, we just turn to God and say, God, you know, I, I have this thing at work. I like it to be different. So we kind of, kind of turn to him as we're driving through life. I want some peace of mind. I'm feeling sad. I want some hope. I'm facing death one day. I want to make sure I'm guaranteed a place in heaven. We just kind of turn to God. And, but we're still driving. But the thing is, when we hand the keys over, and God is driving, we're not in charge of our life anymore. When we surrender to God, the battle is not yours, but God's. We actually give the keys to God and say, okay, God, you're going to drive. We're not in charge of our life anymore. He is. I'm not in charge of my ego anymore. It's not my agenda. It's God's. It's his life. And when I, whenever I do that, it seems like those feelings of being inadequate— not worthy enough, fly it right out the window. And that's what God is telling the king. Don't worry about the battle. Don't, don't feel inadequate. I'm in charge. I'm God. The battle is not yours, but mine. The battle is not yours, but mine. It reminds me of uh, when I became senior pastor here. There is uh, a ministerium meeting once a month over at Granite City on the like, third Wednesday of the month. And we gather together, and I remember... The first time that I went to that meeting and I felt inadequate. Came to that meeting, I only knew one person there. It's all the Maple Grove, most of the Maple Grove pastors. 
And, um, and we're at that table, and I'm looking around, and I'm seeing this guy. He's got 30 years of ministry experience as a senior pastor. I see that person. I see that pastor. I'm like, and then just that feeling of being inadequate just starts to increase in my life. Like, sort of that, that tape or that voice in my head that, Craig, you're an imposter. Honestly, that's what came to mind. You're an imposter. Um, you, you, you don't belong at this table. You don't have enough experience. You're not as good as, as these other pastors. And then, and then this sort of thought, if you talk too much or if you do something, they're going to find out who you really are. How many of us can relate to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like we got to sort of have this you know, behavioral modification just to, just to make sure that we look the certain way and that, that deep down that we're afraid that fi- someone's going to find out who we really are and it's not going to measure up. And I remember having that feeling and then I ordered my meal and I was eating my food and, we're, and, and everybody's talking and stuff and then I, did, I just kind of respond like I always do. There's a, a couple of mentors in my life at Pivotal Moments for me that said what I call words of life. And that really encouraged me in my pastoral ministry and being a senior pastor. And I just replayed that again and again and again and again. And, and pr- pretty soon, as the more I kind of surrendered to God, allowed those words to wash over me, it seemed like that dirt and scum of feeling inadequate just sort of diminished. And I think the more that you and I surrender, that's exactly what happens. You know, it's when we surrender that I think we receive a power and a strength that's not otherwise found. I really believe that. That when we actually surrender, and I know guys, that's hard. That goes against our, our nature, and I think for some women as well. That goes against our nature. The surrender, are you kidding me? It's like it goes right against everything that we've been taught. But God says, this is not your battle, it's mine. Surrender. And when we do, we experience a power, and also I think we receive a freedom from that weight that we carry of being overwhelmed. We have several people in our congregation that are recovering uh, alcoholics and addicts and have been sober for a number of years. Remarkable stories. And when I see them here at church, they just inspire me so much with their journey. And they go to AA meetings. And you're probably familiar with the 12 steps of AA and which of the 12 steps of AA says, you know what? If you're drinking, just stop. Try harder. That's all you got to do, right? If you have an addiction to meth, just stop. Just try harder. No. Like most of us know that. That's not one of the 12 steps. What's one of the 12 steps? Surrender. The most powerful response to the most powerful addicting drugs um, and chemicals in our society. And the response back, in addition to the other 12 steps, is surrender. You can't do it on your own. It's amazing. When you surrender, there's a power that's inherent in doing that. So as I close, I want you to look at your communication card. Whatever you wrote down, Whatever you wrote down, the word or the phrase, and just be reminded by the word of God to King Jehoshaphat. The battle is not yours. 
The battle is not yours, but God's. Let me pray. God in heaven, we feel inadequate so many times. Our students, our adults, our elderly as well. It's a universal experience. And God, I pray that those areas of our lives, it might be several, it might be one, it might be a few, that you would release us from that. This sense of that we have to measure up, that we have to redouble our efforts in order to uh, overcome those feelings. God, help us in our lives to um, look to, to community and then to turn to prayer. And then also, God, for us to surrender. The battle is not yours, but God, thank you for that gift. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.